Matthew chapter 8. It's on page 813 on the Bibles under your seat. And we'll be reading verses 18 through 22. So page 813, Matthew chapter 8, 18 to 22. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike Stanzik. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity. Really happy to have you all here. Today we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. This is one of the key passages on discipleship, and before we... Jump in. Let's just open in prayer. Lord, in some ways, this is one of the passages that you dread as a preacher because when it's a demanding passage, it has to be a demanding sermon. I pray that you would only make our hearts open to obedience, that you would remind us of grace, and all at the same time, Lord, that you would make of us disciples. Amen. So like I mentioned, today's passage gets us into the theme of discipleship in a big way. But, so I thought what would be useful for us would be to sort of open by just sort of thinking a little bit about what we mean when we talk about discipleship. Because it's going to be a very important theme in, in Matthew. So last week I mentioned a samurai movie. Apparently I've got samurai on the brain because here's another samurai movie reference. Uh, the other day... I was watching a movie from 1980. The name of the movie is called Kagemusha. It's a, an incredible film by one of the greatest directors of all time in any country. Um, his name is Kurosawa. It takes place in the 1500s in Japan. So this is like feudal Japan, samurai era. And it follows this thief. And this thief is, is literally in line to be crucified for, for his thievery. And he's plucked out. And he's brought before this warlord named Shingen. And the reason why he's plucked out of line is because the brother of Shingen notices that this thief looks exactly like the warlord, down to every single detail. You know, in the movie, it's the same actor that plays both roles just through, you know, cinematic tricks and stuff like that. So this thief looks exactly like Shingen. So he's brought before this warlord, and the warlord pardons him and then enlists him to become his double. So he's going to act as Shingen's double. But Shingen himself is far too busy and engaged with other things to train this thief. Instead, Shingen has another double. So now there's two doubles, right? So he has another double, his brother. And he's going to train the thief. So Shingen's brother is going to train the thief. So he takes the thief under his wing, and there's just scene after incredible scene of the two of them talking about this man. Like, this, this one man is 
constantly the topic of conversation where the brother's explaining to the thief like how amazing he is and, well, he has this particular mannerism that he'll do at this time and this is the way he talks with, with diplomats and he's having the thief sort of rehearse different mannerisms like he pulls on his mustache in a very particular way and the thief is supposed to you know, practice this really, really distinct mannerism. And so the, the thief gets just totally immersed in the life of this warlord to the point that something starts to happen. He starts to live and to think like this warlord. He begins to love what he loves. He begins to, vo- to devote himself to what he devotes himself to. So that what starts out as imitation over time becomes natural. And the thief is just changed from the inside out. Now, I don't think Kurosawa's main point has anything to do with discipleship. That's not what that movie's about. But as I was watching it, I couldn't help but just be struck by how beautiful an image it was. When Jesus called people to be discipled to him, he was calling them to immerse themselves in his life, in the way he talked and thought and loved, the way he, he structured his time. They were there to watch him and to imitate, to imitate what he did to imitate what they saw with the goal that over time, what starts out as imitation would become natural and they would be changed from the inside out. Jesus came living the way all humans were meant to live. And by being discipled to him, people were beginning to live the way humans were meant to live. So obedience to Jesus is still like that. It's still like that. If we claim to be a Christian, if we claim to be Christians, we're claiming to be disciples like sort of apprentices to the Lord, to be modeling our lives off of his, immersing ourselves in the scriptures to know how he thought and how he lived. In the same way that in the movie, in, in Kagemusha, the thief isn't learning directly from the teacher, right? The teacher is not physically present. In the same way, our teacher may not be physically present, but we grow in imitation of Christ as we imitate mature believers. Discipleship is key to growth is a key part of how outsiders make their way into God's community. It's something that we as a church want to learn how to do with more intentionality, and it is a critical theme in Matthew. And today we jump in. Today's passage goes kind of right into the heart of it by showing us the cost of discipleship. And Matthew's going to tell us to let nothing keep us from following Jesus. Let nothing keep you from following Jesus. And he's going to do it by confronting us with two sort of common excuses that we use to avoid discipleship. First, we see that there is no comfort so essential that it should keep us from following Jesus. Let's reread verses 18 to 20. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So if if you'll recall where we left off last week, we left off with with Jesus at the home of Peter's mother-in-law, and he's casting out demons and diseases. He's healing people, and there's just this crowd sort of flocking around him. And now, at this moment, Jesus does something that he does a couple other times in the gospel. He decides to retreat. 
So the, the demand on his energy eventually becomes too great. Demand on his disciples becomes too great. And so he's going to have them all retreat to pray and to rest. And so he tells them to go over to the other side, meaning the, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so you're meant to assume that he starts making his way to go into the boat, and then he's intercepted by two people on his way to the boat. He's intercepted by two men, and both of them express this desire to go with him, to follow him. So they're, they're asking to be discipled, right, to be apprenticed to Jesus. And if Jesus were any other rabbi at the time and literally had two proselytes just walk up and say, I will follow you wherever you go, any other rabbi would have been really, really into that idea, Right? But not Jesus. He has some really, really demanding words to say in reply. First, he's approached by this scribe. And the scribe is, is very confident. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus seems to pick up on something that maybe even the scribe himself isn't aware of. And it has to do with what the scribe will be willing to sacrifice when following Jesus puts his basic comforts at risk. It has to do with what he's willing to sacrifice when his basic comforts are put at risk by following Jesus. Abraham Heschel, he was this Jewish scholar, did most of his writings in the the 60s and 70s. He led this really, really fascinating life. So he fled Nazi persecution in Poland, fled to the United States, came here and became this very, very prominent Hebrew scholar, like an expert on the prophets, and then... uh, was very, very involved in the civil rights movement. In fact, if you Google his name, most likely you'll come up with images of him linking arms with King at Selma. That's a a really prominent photo of Heschel. He gave an interview once with Carl Stern, and if if you watch it, you'll find there's lots that he believed that we at Trinity do not believe, and there's a bunch of other stuff that he says that's just wonderful. So at one point, Stern asks Heschel, what is the nature of humanity? What's the nature of humanity? Now, I'm going to give a quote by Heschel. It's not going to have the same power because it doesn't have his big mannerisms or the very cute Polish accent, but this is what he says in response. He says, The difference between an animal and a man is not their needs. An animal has needs. Man has needs too. But man, in addition to needs, has to have ends, goals to strive for. The great task is to teach men how to convert ends into needs. So catch what you just did there. In other words, the task that he's taken on himself is to teach people to recognize what humans were made for, to recognize a specific purpose so that they will then center their lives around that purpose instead of on just their needs. So convert needs into ends. The great task is to teach men how to convert ends into needs, but what we do instead, he says, is convert needs into ends. Self-interest becomes central. I think Heschel's words are so relevant, especially for us in this culture where marketers are paid very large sums of money to convince us we need stuff that we don't. And we fall for it over and over again. We live as though our purpose is to fill our appetites. Here's a few examples of how I see this showing up in myself, in my generation, and other generations. Okay, so I, I need to express my individuality and my uniqueness, right? And in order to do that, my phone needs to be highly customizable. My wardrobe needs to be like uniquely suited to express who I am 
in a unique way that's different than all the other people and how they do it, just aesthetically fitted to who I am. And once I have my image worked out, I won't have to work so hard to convince people that my opinions and thoughts are important. My individuality will be established. And at that point, I'll follow Jesus. Here's another one. I need to declutter. My home is too hectic. My life is too hectic. My living space isn't Instagram-worthy enough for me to have peace of mind or to be fully present. My favorite YouTubers wouldn't approve. I need first to live in the ideal place so that then I can pursue the ideal life. With a beautiful home, I'll have the headspace to follow Jesus. That's what I'm guilty of this past week. Here's another one. There's far too much for me to accomplish to follow Jesus as I should. I need to move up in my work. I need to experience more so that I can be the kind of accomplished person that will live a regret-free life. So only after I've made absolutely sure that I won't have any career regrets, no experiences left unexperienced, no rungs on the career ladder left unclimbed, only then will I really follow Jesus. We have taken needs, and sometimes not even needs, and we have made them our purpose, our end. We've mistaken needs for ends. I think this is what Jesus is challenging with the scribe. Trinity, we are not merely animals. We weren't made for a product. We were made for a purpose. A purpose that far outstrips our need for needs. To be living, breathing vessels of worship to the Creator. Co-workers with God for the life of the world. That's the purpose of being human. And we learn to live that way through discipleship to Jesus. God has extended his mercy and grace in Christ to coax us away from the idols that will break our hearts. Jesus isn't calling you to, you know, choose a vow of poverty or ruin yourself on purpose or something that's not useful to the kingdom, so don't hear him telling the scribe this, but he is absolutely calling us to reconsider our budgets, the square footage of our homes, our possessions, whatever. And to recognize that when discipleship calls us to make a choice between comfort, even basic comfort, and him, the choice should be clear. He's calling us to make our decisions based not on maximizing our comfort, but on maximizing our obedience. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Your heart can't handle being divided. There is no comfort so essential that it should keep us from following Jesus. Secondly, there's no commitment so pressing that it should keep us from following Jesus. Verses 21 to 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So next it says that a disciple approaches Jesus. So this is someone who's already actually been following him. And as Jesus prepares to continue his journey, this disciple comes up to him and makes a seemingly reasonable request, right? But Jesus doesn't appear to agree. So the disciple asks to bury his father. Now in Jewish custom, you would probably bury the dead within 24 hours. So 
if his father had literally just died, he probably wouldn't be here with Jesus. He'd be burying his father. So what, he, what he's probably saying is that his father's aging. His father's aging, and so he's asking to remain back for however long it takes to see the end of his father's life, bury him, mourn, and then at that point, he'll follow Jesus. So while, while Christ's response, maybe it's not as uncompromising as we originally think, it's still pretty uncompromising. I mean, he is asking the man to, to forego basic commitments to family in favor of following the Lord right then and there. I mean, that's pretty intense, but let's pause for a second to imagine what would happen if this disciple left right then. So he's already been following Jesus, right? But Jesus' ministry hasn't been going on that long at this point. So who knows how how long he's, he's been really following. His father's been aging the whole time. So this isn't a new development, but now suddenly it becomes pressing enough that the disciple is going to back up. He's going to step back from following the teacher. He's going to return home. He's going to do it for an indefinite period of time, just putting everything on hold. And he's assuming a lot. He's assuming that when the time is perfect for him to start following again, that he'll be able to just pick up where he left off. He's assuming that Jesus will still be waiting there for him like a dog at the door. He's assuming that when the time comes, he'll still want to follow Jesus. So discipleship in his mind has gone from a life lived imitating and serving the king to something that happens at his convenience, even for very good, seemingly very good reasons. Discipleship is something that happens on Jesus' timing, but he's insisting it should happen on his. Now some of us in this room already know that there are many times in which a commitment to Jesus will put us at odds with our very own families, cause us to do some unpopular things, but I also want us to be honest with ourselves that we tend to buckle under much less. Like to give a more positive example, I, I was once talking to this pastor out in Wakanda, and he was telling me about how his daughter really wanted to join Indian princesses, so that's kind of like a, da- a daddy-daughter organization, one night a week commitment. And so what he was trying to work out is whether or not in, in doing Indian princesses, that he and his wife and their family were still going to be as released to be hospitable, to, to seek out the lost, to, to be disciples. And so he and his wife looked at their schedule, and they asked, would adding this to our lives in any way inhibit our ability to raise our kids to be disciples? And they decided that it would. And so they didn't do it. Like, if they, they decided that if they added this one night a week, they would be communicating to their kids that hospitality and time for relationships with God's people and the lost, that that takes a back seat. And I was blown away by this. Like, it was probably one of the most countercultural things I'd ever heard someone say. Like, everyone in America is busy to the point of compulsion. How are you, not, how are you okay with, with not doing an additional thing, especially when it has to do with your kids? I couldn't imagine at the time what it would mean to hack away at my schedule the way he was describing. Like, you don't get those years back. And yet, I will tell you, this guy and his family are full of life, full of the work of God. That, that For them, no commitment is so pressing that it keeps them from discipleship, and it shows up in his kids. 
their life is full of life. I don't think he's going to have any regrets. That leads us right into this mysterious phrase that Jesus uses. He uses the phrase, let the dead bury their own dead. It's a very provocative thing to say. There's lots of speculation as to what Jesus means here, but I'll share what I think is the most convincing reading. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to say another really convicting phrase. He's going to tell his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. And he will say this is essential because anyone who tries to save his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. He's telling his disciples to follow him as though in doing so they are giving up their very lives. In other words, when we ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to live fully? I think the images that come into our mind are someone whose life is full of awesome experiences and positive friendships. and It's a very self-interested image. And Jesus is saying that that life only leads to death. Jesus is telling this disciple that if he turns away at that moment from the only one who can give him life, And if he goes at that moment to go with the rest of his family to wait out his father's final years, he will be choosing the death of his soul. He may be alive, but inwardly he will be dead. And when burial time finally comes, the dead will bury the dead. Now, is Jesus telling us to neglect our families? Emphatically, no. This is a very particular case with a particular disciple with Jesus physically present, and so he had to make a particular decision. But there's still a reason Matthew included it in his gospel. Self-interest as a way of life will kill you. Procrastination when it comes to discipleship will kill you. Opting not to follow Jesus is opting for the way of death. But to turn toward Jesus is to turn toward the purpose for which we were made. It may look at times like reckless self-sacrifice, like risk, like moments you can't get back. But the truth is that it's the road to fullness and to meaning. In discipleship to him, we find the end of our isolation. The world will call it foolish. We will call it wise. The world will call it lost, but we will call it gain because our eyes are on the Lord. So there's no comfort so essential that should keep us from following Jesus. There's no commitment so pressing that should keep us from following Jesus. So let nothing keep you from following Jesus. So as a preacher, you're always tempted to go back and, and like caveat everything you've said, right? <laughs> Especially in demanding sermons like this. A lot of times we hear these words of Christ and our reaction is fear, dread, We wonder how we'll know when we've done enough. It feels like a burden to us. Like we're just supposed to stop everything and just volunteer at like a 24-hour soup kitchen and do our best not to have fun. Like that seems to be how we often interpret these passages, right? But that's not what's going on here, and I hope that's clear. Working out these questions that we have there, it is important, and it happens with the whole Bible in mind and, and Christian community at our sides. But I don't know, as I close... My impulse, instead of wanting to caveat all of Jesus' words until suddenly they don't mean anything anymore, I'd rather just try to zero in on something else that might be going on in our hearts. 
we have this impulse to say, how much is he asking of me? Everything. He is asking everything. And if we give everything, we will find that what we receive is worth far more than the cost. The title of today's sermon is Count the Cost, Know the Worth. Two phrases that at first might sound pretty similar, but I don't think they mean the same thing at all. Like if I were in a used bookstore and I came across this mint condition, like in the laminate casing, first edition of Oliver Twist, like one of the most iconic pieces of English literature ever, anywhere. If I ran into this thing, I'd be like, oh my, man, this is a really, really expensive, it's worth a lot. I mean, just borderline priceless. And if I saw the price tag was for 400 bucks, now that's very steep as far as the average book goes, but I would know that that cost is nothing compared to how much the book is worth. It's worth far more than what it will cost. In the same way, Jesus, later on, he'll tell a story, and he'll describe the kingdom as though it's a treasure in a field. So he, he tells the story of a man walking in a field, and suddenly he happens on this just priceless, incredible treasure out in some field. And zero hesitation, he, he covers up the treasure, he runs, and he goes back to his own household, and he sells everything he owns. He doesn't keep a stick of his own furniture. Everything goes. Because he knows that with the money, he's going to purchase that field. And in that field is a treasure that will more than reimburse everything that he's given. The treasure is worth far more than the cost. Jesus isn't calling us not to enjoy life. He isn't calling us not to celebrate life. Those things are actually really, really important. But we shouldn't make a a mistake here. They aren't the most important. Not even close. Jesus is calling us to live lives of radical obedience, of uncommon love. Lives that will run against the grain of the consumeristic priorities and habits of our culture. And there is a cost involved. But the kingdom is worth far more than the cost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to count the cost and to know the worth. To know, Lord, that you are worth far more than any comfort. That the life that you invite us into, that we can even now experience in obedience to you, might put us into discomfort, but it will also put us into meaning. I pray, God, that we would not hesitate to sell our metaphorical household and buy the metaphorical field. You would make of us true disciples. We thank you, Lord, for your grace on the cross that, that makes it possible for us to falteringly, tripping over our feet, but makes it possible for us to follow you, knowing full well that, that our sins will not bar us in the end from the kingdom and that they are not too big for you to overcome by grace and discipleship. Amen.